Recovery Elevator, episode 186. It's a paradox for us to say we can't do it alone because we're the only ones that can do it. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Angie. She's 36 years old. She's from Atlanta, Georgia, sober for 146 days, and has two dogs, one named Elfie and the other one named Glenda. Before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator Podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. Alcohol gave me the wings to fly, then it took away the sky. I wasn't too sure how to title this podcast episode, so I used an anonymous quote that I read in a book the other day. So the purpose of this podcast episode is to instill a message into the unconscious mind, to put a speed bump and maybe even a detour in thinking at the unconscious level. While you're listening, I want you to make an intention that this message, this information pass through to the unconscious mind. Okay, let's continue getting started. In Oceana County, Michigan, everyone was talking about a recent billboard that was put up. And this is a true story. It had a picture of a beer bottle laying flat. In the back of the bottle was a plunger. In the front of the bottle was a needle, representing a syringe, and the drug in the syringe was alcohol. The point of this imaginative billboard was to create awareness in the small community of Oceana, Michigan, which it did. The billboard was well received by nearly everyone, and people started to have a conversation that needed to be had. Someone who did not like the billboard was the local beer wholesaler. So he complained to the Michigan Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association, and guess what came down? The billboard. The argument went something like this. Look, we're part of the community, and we think we ought to be consulted when you put up a billboard about products we sell with pride. Let's work out a compromise. How about we sponsor an art contest with the local high school students and come up with ideas for a billboard, and we'll even help judge the entries. Yes, this actually happened as well. Since my favorite early 2000s and still highly irrelevant rapper is ludicrous, I'm going to bring that word in this equation. Imagine how ludicrous it would be for public health officials to sit down with heroin and cocaine traffickers who are fuming about an anti-drug campaign. And through sipping coffee and donuts, the two groups work out a compromise, toning down the anti-drug message so as not to offend any of the parties involved. You might be saying to yourself, really Paul? Alcohol in the same conversation as heroin and cocaine? Well, in 2010, a Dr. David Nutt was hired by the British government to place a harm score on 20 of the world's most addictive and harmful drugs. Guess what came in at number one? It was alcohol. By a long shot. Side note, after the study was published, which was backed up by ample, solid evidence, 
He was removed from his position by the British government. Interesting. I'm guessing this took place after the British government sipped coffee and tea and ate donuts with uh, the big alcohol companies of Great Britain, all while the ludicrous song Act of Fool played in the background. The unconscious mind, or the ego, has been conditioned to differentiate between drugs and alcohol. We always hear them separate, but please open a window to the unconscious mind and let it know that it's just one word, drugs. In fact, alcohol is the only drug on the planet we have to justify not taking. Hey Tony, want some meth? No, I'm good, Rick. You know what, Tony? Good for you. Nice job. With alcohol, which according to the stats is more harmful than meth in the long run, the response isn't always a good for you, Tony. It's like, Tony, you serious? Come on, man. So as Ludacris would say, stand up and don't accept this thinking that has been vomited upon us our entire lives through big alcohol, through the media, through the grocery stores, billboards, etc. And here's the most important message to drill into the unconscious mind. Alcohol is shit. It sucks us into the game, and once we feel like we've got all the rules and caveats figured out, it changes the rules of the game. And after the interview with Angie, I want to share with you a true story that happened to me about a week ago. I was at a bar, a tequila shot in front of me, about eight people staring at me chanting, Paul, Paul, Paul. How did I get into that situation, and how did I get out of that situation? Okay, enough out of me. Uh, Let's hear from Angie. Angie, how are you? I'm doing great, Paul. How about yourself? Angie, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Angie, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? Um, I have been sober for 146 days today. Nice job. Thanks. Yeah, and before we get any further, Angie, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Absolutely. I am originally from Kansas City, but I have been living in the Atlanta area for the last three years. I'm 36 years old. I'm single. I have uh, two amazing Shih Tzus, Elsie and Glinda. I work in advertising. And what I do for fun? Well, this is something I'm really learning again in recovery uh, because before it was drinking. So my fun is no longer centered around drinking. I love live music. I love going to the theater, uh, going to the movies, and I really enjoy cooking. One thing that I really started to enjoy in sobriety is my own company. (laughs) I always felt like I was running away from myself when I was drinking, and it's really nice to be happy with just me. Angie, there's a lot to cover right there at at the end, but so (laughs) we'll cover that stuff shortly, but... Give listeners a background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits, how much you drank, and did you ever have any attempts to regulate, and when did you decide it was time to quit? So take take a couple minutes, three, five, seven, ten minutes, and try to include dates you know, and ages, and give us some background okay. about your drinking. Sure. So I actually did not drink like a lot of people. I never drank in high school or even college. A lot of that had to do with my background in the evangelical uh, Christian church, so drinking was super frowned upon there. So I would say my first drink was when I was 23, after I was married, and honestly, alcohol was like a big warm hug for me. I always struggled with abandonment, rejection, feeling lonely, and as soon as I took that first drink, I felt a lot of love. I felt confidence, I, you know, in myself and that kind of stuff. I, you know, when I first started drinking, it was always binge drinking. It was never, you know, I would sit and have a glass of wine with some friends. We would always drink to get drunk. But I always thought I had it under control. I always thought, oh, you know, 
we'll party on the weekends, you know, then go to work during the week. But alcohol is insidious. It sneaks up on you. And before you know it, before I knew it, I was I was drinking all the time. And I think that I realized I didn't drink normally. Um, after I went through my divorce in 2012, that was a really very difficult time for me. It brought to surface all of the things I was drinking to forget, you know, those those childhood traumas, that abandonment, that rejection, everything came to a head when I went through that divorce. I actually had a failed suicide attempt at that time because I was just so low and dark and just did not want to did not want to go on. So after, after that, after that failed suicide attempt, man, I just started drinking destructively. I didn't care. I didn't want to live, you know, so I just, I just really turned to alcohol to kind of just forget everything. And I did, I did. So that was, those are kind of, kind of the background in drinking. Towards the end, I would drink between six and 10 drinks a night. So I was constantly drunk or constantly hungover. I really felt like I wasn't living. I was just barely, barely surviving. So that's a little bit of my background. After after my failed suicide attempt, after my divorce, I tried uh, the geographical cure. So um, I moved from Kansas City to Atlanta uh, three years ago. And even though I kept drinking, definitely moving was not a cure, but it was definitely the beginning of self-awareness of my drinking problem and kind of starting to rein that in. Angie, so, that's yeah. a fantastic background. And we... We got a couple things in common, and let me see if I can read my own <laughs> handwriting. First off, we're both 36. Um, before I hit record, I asked you your favorite movie. We both love the movie My Little Sunshine with Steve Carell. Um, we both got a tremendous warm hug from alcohol. We both attempted the geographical cure, and we both had a failed suicide attempt, right? And I appreciate you, you, you opening up about that because it was a huge part of my story. And there was a time when the wheels came off for my life too, and and all the emotions came up that I was drinking to suppress. Yeah, we've and, and, and the more we talk, we're gonna have a lot more in common just because we both went through this vicious beast called alcohol. Um, yeah, and you know, did you ever have like a rock bottom moment that propelled you into into this journey into sobriety, or was it just like a sick and tired of being sick and tired? Yeah, it really was a sick and tired of being sick and tired. I never really wanted to stop drinking. I never thought that that would be a part of my life. I always thought alcohol would be there. But I would say probably uh, one of my rock bottom moments was um, I was working a part-time job here in Atlanta. And uh, I was kind of going through a really tough time. It was a little bit of a heartbreak here in Atlanta. And I remember, oh, you know, I don't want to go to work, so I'm going to stop and have a few drinks before I go. I feel bad. And then, you know, then that turned into going to the liquor store and getting a couple of little nips to drink at work. And I ended up going into work and speaking with my both of my bosses, and I have no recollection of that. I was completely blacked out. I have no idea how they didn't know I was drunk. Um, I'm a good bullshitter, so I guess that that's why. But I would say that that is one of my one of my rock bottom moments for sure. And when was that? That was after I tried to get sober, and I was sober for seventy days. So that was just a few months ago, oh, uh, maybe gotcha. six months ago, seven months ago. Yeah. Yeah, and you said something that I want to explore a little deeper. You said I always thought I had it under control, and I know everybody who's listening to this podcast right now has said that to themselves internally, or maybe they're reaching 
that moment internally where like, wait a second, maybe I don't have this under control. So talk to us about the time and maybe explain a specific moment when you realized, wait a second, I don't have this under control. Sure. I would say that moment was one of the major ones. Um, Definitely. You know, I just, yeah, I look, I look back in my life and I just fooled myself. I fooled myself. I thought that everything else was the problem. I thought, oh, my, you know, narcissist ex-husband is the problem. My childhood is the problem. All this pain that I have, that's the problem in my life. That's why I'm not happy, you know. And it took me a really long time to admit that alcohol was what made me unhappy in my life, what made me feel out of control, that, you know, contributed to this, like, gut-wrenching heaviness of, of anxiety every single day of my life. So, you know, and I just, I really think that moving to Atlanta, getting that second job was really um, an eye-opener for me because I never wanted to work a second job. I did not want to do it, but I had to do it. And so I would drink all the time before I would go clean. I, I was a commercial cleaner. Sure. So I'd drink before I would go clean. So I think that that was really the red flag for me. Also trying to quit having, you know, seven days and then just crashing and burning. Um, was also an indicator that I could not control alcohol. Angie, not everybody leaves the denial phase and starts this journey to sobriety. And what did it feel like when you realized, wait a second, alcohol is the problem? Wow. It was empowering, honestly. It was very emotional because, like I said, honestly, I... I felt that I needed to drink to receive love. Everybody would always tell, oh, I love drunk Angie. You know, she's so much fun, you know. And I really associated um, alcohol with love. And so once I stopped looking to the bottle to get that acceptance, and I started looking within myself and how strong I am, it was really empowering. But like I said, it was definitely an emotional experience one of the one of the tools that I used to kind of get to this this acceptance was I actually wrote a goodbye letter to alcohol. I thanked it for what it served in my life, which was protection and kind of helped me through some of those really, really tough times. And then I said goodbye. I let it go. I broke up with it. And so it is a huge weight lifted off your shoulders once you can truly admit to yourself. And it took a while. It took a while. It took a relapse. It took a, a while. But once I just decided, like I said, to look within myself as opposed to look everywhere else for love, that was that was when things changed. Wow, you are nailing this interview, Angie. <laughs> I got to tell you, my my pen is my pen is just scribbling. You're you're nailing it. And the, we, ever so often, our conscious mind can settle, and we can have a moment of clarity. And on September 6, 2014, I had that same moment of clarity when I realized, oh, fuck, alcohol is the problem, 100%, you know, at the surface level. And then you quit drinking, and then you get to, like, the core root of the problems. But at that moment, fuck, alcohol was the problem. And I dumped it out. September 7, 2014 was, was my sobriety date. But like you mentioned, it's empowering. Soon as we get, you, as soon as you realize that the external stuff is always going to be modifying and changing, imagine if we could take all of our problems in the external world and eliminate them. It's only a matter of time before more problems come, you know, arrive at our plate. And so, like you said, it's empowering. And the Dear John letter is huge. In fact, I just did a free five-day 
uh, sobriety course, and I think that's day four, task three, <laughs> right? Hey guys, let's yeah. do pen to paper. You have to have like a formal goodbye to alcohol because mm-hmm. for me, it was my best friend. It gave me a warm hug for so long. And what was it like after you gave that formal goodbye to alcohol? It changed. I mean, it shifted within me. I just realized that I could do it and that I was strong enough. You know, I I remember I went through a 10-day counseling seminar after my divorce, and they they used these words to describe me, and I fucking hated it. Like, I was like, this is not me, and it was exactly me. And what they said was, oh, I wish <laughs> I could do this. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. I wish someone would do it for me. And as soon as I just just knew that that was true, that I spent all this time wishing somebody would save me, wishing somebody would do this for me. And, and I just, I, I realized that I had all the tools, everything that I needed within myself. And as soon as like that, that shift in thinking happened and I really accepted that, life got so much better. Life got so much easier. And yeah, so that's, uh, you know, I, I realized that, you know, like I said, I was waiting for this knight in shining armor. And I realized that I was, you know, the badass and beautiful, genuine, accepting, passionate, cherished, you know, knight in shining armor of my own story. I was everything that I needed. And all I really needed to do is, like you said, shut down that negative voice, know that that is not me. Those, you know, whatever they say, whatever that voice says to me is not true. And Angie, just with everybody's journey in sobriety, there comes a point when you realize, oh, fuck, this starts with me from within. And you get to a point where you're yep. like, my gosh, the answer was inside the entire time. <laughs> Given you can't do this alone, you do need an external support community. But once you realize mm-hmm. that alcohol is no longer serving a purpose in life, that's empowering. And then B, we're not put on this planet without the internal tools to become a self-regulating adult to manage the alcohol to eradicate it from our lives. And so it sounds like you reached these two huge milestones in only like the last several months. So nice job. And then how did you do it? And did you have any? Did you have any times where you, you tried to you put plans into place and they didn't work? Yeah, you know, I'm gonna talk a little bit first about my relapse that I had. I initially got sober last November. And I tried, you know, I thought I was doing it right. I thought that, you know, I was, I wanted to change. And I I just really wasn't, like you said, searching that community, you know, and it's, it's a, it's a paradox for us to say, we can't do it alone, because we're the only ones that can do it, you know, and so I think that I really struggled with that for a while. And using community like Cafe RE, like AA, to my advantage. And I think that, you know, so I had 70, about 74 days sober and I relapsed and it was terrible. And I think that it was so terrible because of our conversation and dialogue around relapse. Um, and because most of us who drink so much are perfectionists. And I think that, you know, I realized that I, I didn't want to be fearful. I feel like relapse is, is we're afraid of it. And, you know, of course, we don't want to relapse. That's not something that that's not our end goal. But it's not the end of the fucking world. And I thought it was the end of the fucking world. I thought that I was just the worst person because I failed at this. And so what I've done differently now, um, you know, starting February 25th is I have just 
reached out because I can't do this alone. You know, we, we say this over and over and over in recovery. You can't do it alone, but you really can't. And being alone, being lonely is one of my biggest fears. Like it is, it is gut wrenching and painful because of a lot of trauma in my life. Um, because I was, uh, you know, put up for adoption. I have a, a lot of deep seated stuff um, mm-hmm. with being alone. And I realized that nobody was going to reach out to me that I had to do it. And as soon as I started doing that, um, being more active in Cafe RE, I started to go to AA. I went to SMART. I go to Refuge Recovery. I go to all three of them. I just organized a meetup for sober people um, in Atlanta. Wow. And, and it is just, it is, it is a beautiful thing. And that, for me, is, the, is my most important tool, other than loving myself. But letting people in um, to help me has been, has been how I've done it how I've gotten 146 days. And Angie, I got an email in my inbox saying, you have a new registration for the Dallas meetup in January of 2018. I then got an email from you saying that you were not able to attend. You were no longer able to attend the Dallas meetup. Talk to us about what, at the reason why and where yeah. you're at now. Yeah. Man, I thought I was going to get away from that question. <laughs> <laughs> nope. No. Um, nope. Yeah. Yeah. So I had signed up for the Dallas retreat, um, which was in January. And right before, maybe a week, maybe two weeks right before I was supposed to go was when I relapsed. And I just felt like a piece of shit. And I knew that if I would have been honest and I would have went to Dallas, everybody would have loved me. And I just loved on me, helped me through this time. And I just isolated. I just decided that I wasn't worth it at that time and that I wasn't going to like reach out and I didn't want that community. And I, so I didn't go. And then I kept drinking for two more months. So I wish I would have gone. I wish I would have gone, but uh, I didn't. So, yeah. No, and I, I, I bring that up because I just want listeners to know because somebody who's listening is going to find themselves in that same boat. They're going to sign up for a retreat, whether it be with Recovery Elevator or maybe a different, you know, like an AA weekend retreat. And they might have a whoopsie daisy, a slip up. You know, as long as you're not detoxing, that's the time you, you need to get out of bed, put your shoes on, you know, put your camping mm-hmm. gear together, whatever, pack a bag and, and get to the retreat. And, and Angie, I'm so glad we're talking today. And I'm so glad this last weekend you inter- you, you actually organized a, a Cafe RE meetup in Atlanta. And I spoke with some of the attendees and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just want to bring that up because I know it's going to help other people. I don't want to talk about it like you missed, yeah. a, you gr- you missed a great time. But because when people relapse, like that's the time where you got to pull out your phone and start dialing numbers and you got to start yeah. reaching out. But it's hard to do, I understand. <laughs> Um, and, and talk to Absolutely. me about the self-loathing and how you've transformed that. And you did a member spotlight mm-hmm. the other night, and I love the way you explained it. Talk to us more about that. Sure. So I have always hated myself. I have never felt good enough, pretty enough, smart enough, witty enough. Like I just, it is something that I have, I think many people deal with. And you know, it's, it's stuff that we've been told in our past, and then we just eternalize it. And it's just not true. But self, self-loathing was, was a real thing for me. And, you know, I, you know, 146 days ago, I woke up and it was one of the worst drunks of my life that I woke up from. I had gone to a friend's house. I drank my face off. 
And I woke up the next day, probably still a little drunk, and I hated myself. I hated myself. I hated I failed again. I hated I couldn't do it. And so the next day, I went and bought a bottle of whiskey, and I took shot after shot after shot until that bottle of whiskey was, was, was gone. So when I woke up from that, I hated myself. And for whatever reason, I had a moment of clarity, and I realized that no matter what, I couldn't keep hating myself because I was not going to move. I was not going to change. I was not going to grow, you know. And for me, like we've said, like people have said before, drinking is but a symptom. And I realized I drank because I hated myself. And I knew right in that moment that I had to change that dialogue, that I had to love myself exactly where I was in that hungover, feeling like piece of shit moment, because I wasn't a piece of shit. And I realized that day that, man, I had a new story to write. And it looked nothing like my past, which was super encouraging. And so, you know, I just... I woke up that day, like I said, and I reached out to Cafe RE. I, you know, Googled positive quotes and wrote them in my journal. And I just knew that it was time to start battling that negative inner voice. And I did that a lot of ways. I've started to meditate, which is huge. Um, You know, we talk about how, like, you can't, you know, all this fear, all this anxiety we have comes from the past. It comes from us worrying about the future. But if you take five, 10 minutes to just breathe, and I did that before this interview, you just take a few minutes to breathe. And, and it is, it is powerful. I used to think meditation was bullshit. I thought, man, these people are stupid. I don't know why. Who can sit <laughs> for eight hours, you know, and like yeah. feel better. I you got know? stuff to do. And <laughs> Yeah, I got I have shit to do. I gotta take care of some business, man. But meditating is taking care of business. It is it is setting your mind straight. And just in that moment it it is it is peaceful. So I, I added that into my life, which has been huge. And I decided I needed to go to therapy. I needed to go to talk therapy and talk some of this shit out and have, you know, another source of, uh, of a positive outside voice to help remind me of the things. Cause we know these things. I think deep down, we all know we're fucking awesome and we all know that we're powerful, but, um, life just gets in the way. So, uh, talk therapy has also been really important to me too. Angie, there's mm-hmm. this novel concept that I've been exploring in the last four to five months and I'm witnessing, witnessing it firsthand. The slower I go, the more I accomplish and the quieter the mind can be. It's, it's phenomenal. I have, I've doubled down on my meditation the last three months and I've seen some tremendous results. And Angie, I, I love what you said about the whole self-loathing and loving yourself. Like, and, and what it comes down to is you're worth it. You're absolutely worth it. There's no way absolutely. you're going to be put on this planet where mm-hmm. people, you know, the ultimate creators flip, flipping a coin or not and be like, oh, you are mm-hmm. destined for a life of suffering. It's, no, we have the power right. within. We all have that light. And, you, and sometimes we have moments of clarity. We cannot, we cannot think our way through our drinking problems, but we, sometimes we have a moment of clarity. And, and you know, I think for myself, it's like Paul has, has the tough love hating bullshit ever worked. I tried that for 15 years. Mm-hmm. It didn't. And so you're right. When I first got sober, I, I made a big shift. But in the last three months, I've made an even a, a bigger shift with meditation to fully embrace the Paul, to love myself. And I'm glad you're doing the same. And, and Angie, you know, what's, what's, walk us through a day in your recovery, and, and how are you going to get day 147? You know, what, what other recovery tools would you like to implement in your recovery? Yeah. So a day in recovery, like I said, I wake up, and before I 
even turn on my phone. And this, I mean, this is a huge challenge for me, but I do, I spend probably about 15, 20 minutes in meditation. And then another big tool in recovery are my freaking dogs. They're amazing. And, uh, you know, they, they need to, they have needs that need to be met. And so one thing that I do every morning is I take them on a long walk. You know, I set, I set aside you know, 30, 45 minutes and we go for a long walk. Um, and that just really, those two things really start my day off well. You know, I reach out to Cafe Ari a ton. You know, I, you, you, we offer uh, webinars, things like that. So I attend to that. I uh, hit up at least one meeting a week, whether that's AA, Smart, or Refuge Recovery. Those three, you know, I, I don't love the program of, of all of them, you know, individually. But, you know, I take what I take what I need and leave the rest. So I usually hit up a meeting. And then I... You know, at the end of the day, I usually sit down and I'll just journal a little bit. Man, and I used to never think I would be a journaler. I was like, man, what? What? Again, it's that, you know, we get, need to get to the next thing. We need to get to the next thing. Yep. But uh, journaling, I got a checklist of yeah. things to do. I can't journal. <laughs> right. Journal. But, you know, what's helped me is I have cute Sharpies and I journal in Sharpies. So that makes me very happy. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Just sitting down and taking a few minutes and being grateful um, for the day, even if it was a hard day, there's always at least one thing to be thankful for. And usually there's a plethora of things. Yeah, so that's that's kind of a day in recovery for me. Honestly, just, you know, you hear, we, we hear that cliche one day at a time, which is absolutely true. But a mantra that I've really accepted is one thing at a time, because mm, like again, like my mind, yeah, I, I always get overwhelmed. I'm like, okay, I have to do all these things, all these things, all these things. Okay, well, AMG first, you need to take a fucking shower because you stink. And then we'll get on to the next thing, you know? So it's just, you know, it's one thing at a time. And so, um, and my life is, my life is a lot slower and peaceful. I used to have all this drama. It was, it was self-induced drama. Um, when I was drinking, but life is just so much calmer. And sometimes it's really hard to sit in that calm um, because I'm not used to it, but it absolutely is a life for me. So, and what's your proudest moment in sobriety, Angie? My proudest moment in sobriety. Well, recent. Okay. So I would say I'm a huge musical theater nerd and I just went to see the musical Hamilton and I went with a with a good girlfriend of mine here in Atlanta, and she knows I'm not drinking. We've had this conversation. She actually had a couple of interventions with me when I first moved here. Mm. But we went, and she was drinking and wanted me to drink. And I told her, you know, I ordered my you know, club soda, cranberry, splash of lime, good to go. And she literally handed a drink and put it in my hand. Here, try this. Huh. And and I said no. I said no. And um, that really. And then I went to the bathroom and cried and texted my friend Jen. Um, and then uh, you know, but I made it through it. I made it through it. So that was just you know, that was just a month ago. I would say that was probably one of my proudest moments in sobriety. Hell yeah, Angie. That sounds <laughs> like a perilous moment to navigate. You're in a theater. You've got a friend, and, and hopefully, you had another conversation with your friend saying, "Look, like this is this is a line in the sand. No." longer do that again in the future um nice right, job i did no thank you thank you and as you covered this earlier in the interview a little bit but what are your thoughts on relapse yeah um so my thoughts on relapse i think that anything we do in life we fail at a lot of the times i really believe that success is built on failure and so honestly like i just think that relapse happens you know and it's okay like 
I don't, obviously it's not, that's not a, okay, well you need to relapse to, you know, get to a, you know, this, this sobriety, happy life, you know, but I just really believe that it is just a part of life sometimes, you know, like we have hiccups, like, you know, you hike a mountain there, there, you know, there are times where you have to push really hard and you slip and fall sometimes. And that's just, it's just part of it, honestly. And I think that the less that we focus on beating ourselves up, um, the better off we'll be. So yeah, success is built on failure. I mean, so that's, you know, that's kind of my thought on that. Angie, I couldn't agree more. In fact, the Recovery Elevator podcast is built on failure. I failed at quitting mm-hmm. to drinking enough times. I was like, mm-hmm. fuck it. I'm starting a podcast. I need, to, I need added accountability. And same thing goes with the private groups. This is like our sixth or seventh retreat coming up, and we failed at a lot of things this retreat. So it's like, okay, next retreat, let's not do that. Let's do this. It's all a work in progress. I love how you said that. You, I, I really don't know anybody who's got it right from the first time, without a doubt. Um, and Angie, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Dude, I was born ready. I love it, Angie. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? Yeah, you know, I touched on it, but I, I definitely believe that my worst memory from drinking was my uh, failed suicide attempt. I, you know, found out my ex-husband had cheated on me right before our marriage ended. Um, I'd been drinking all night, and it, it ended with me trying to take my life. So that definitely, that definitely is a worse memory from drinking. And Angie, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you needed to quit drinking? Yeah, I think that my oh shit moment, like a major one, was going to my, uh, my part-time job uh, completely blitzed and blacking out talking to my boss. And Angie, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Yes. Uh, my plan in sobriety moving forward is truly taking it one thing at a time, one day at a time. You know, honestly, like I said, my, my anxiety-ridden mind used to constantly be worried about my past and, and fearful of my future. So I think that my plan is to continue to work to be in the present moment. I think another important thing to remember for me is not to isolate myself ever. So making and cultivating uh, sober friendships um, has been so important, and I want to continue to do that as well. And Angie, what's your favorite resource in recovery? Cafe RE. <laughs> it truly is. I mean, I got to say thank you for being such an integral member of the community. You're always posting. You've really embraced the, you know, not what do I get from the community, but what can I give. You're always showing up, giving inspiration, support, thoughts. Um, I, so I got to say thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. And in regards to sobriety, Angie, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice that I've ever received is that I'm worth it. I'm worth doing hard things, and I'm worth being sober. You are absolutely worth it, and so am I. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery who are thinking about getting sober? Sure. Just give it a shot. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> um, you know, give it, <laughs> nice. give it, <laughs> right? Give it 90 days and see what happens. And if 90 days feels overwhelming, that's another reason to try to give it 90 days. The drink will always be waiting for you if you decide to go back. Also, like I just said, like you are worth it. We are all worth it. Uh, Don't listen to that shitty voice in your head saying that it's too hard or you won't ever change. Reach out to a community because you truly, like we say, you can't do it alone. And people understand what you're going through in recovery. They really, really do. So, yeah, give it a shot. 
And Angie, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you're an avid The Office fan and watch episodes nightly. But you have to skip the episode where they have an intervention for Meredith because it hits too close to home. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> I love those. Yeah. Uh, Angie, please <laughs> give Elfie and Glenda a big hug for me. Thank you so much for okay. joining us this morning. Thanks so much, Paul. Like Angie said in the interview, she always thought she had it under control until she didn't. Looking back, there was only a short time frame where I had it under control, or maybe I actually never had it under control. It's because alcohol instills a program into our unconscious mind that runs on auto loop that tells us we are in control. That one auto loop program instilled in the unconscious mind might explain why it's the most dangerous drug on the planet. I was playing with fire from the very first drink I took. I got burnt. At times I got torched and I'm so lucky today and I'm even thankful for the lessons that I learned during that time in my life. And before we depart, I want to share an experience with you that I recently had and I know many of you have found yourself in similar circumstances. I have a business called Overtime Sports. We put on adult social sports leagues like flag football, ski ball, dodgeball, etc. It was the last night of kickball. And guess what? My team actually won the finals. It's a lot of fun. And we have a deal set up with a restaurant, a bar, where after they play a game, they can redeem the, the coupon for appetizers and drinks, etc. So after my team, Denim Venom, took home the cup. And as the name implies, we play in all denim. I got a sweet denim vest with no sleeves, of course. My team headed to the sponsor bar. I walk up to the bar and order two soda waters with lime, one for myself and another one for my sober buddy named Dusty, who's going to be interviewed on this podcast in probably about a month. To my right, there's about eight team members of the team that we just played in the championships. The bartender is pouring tequila shots for all eight of those players, and guess what? I'm the ninth. One of the members of their team says, oh, get another shot for the commish. She puts the shot down, fills it up with tequila. Everyone's looking at me, and they're going, here's to the commish, Paul, Paul. Paul, Paul. This all went down in a matter of seconds. I looked down at the shot, looked up at them, looked behind me for backup. Nobody. I was like, wow, that happened fast. I started, looked at them, you know, and I waved my hands. I started shaking my head no. And every time I shook my head no, they just started yelling, Paul, 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 louder and louder and louder. So fortunately, where I'm at in sobriety, I knew there was no way I was going to take this drink. But I was wondering for a second, how the hell am I going to get out of this situation? It didn't take long to realize that the truth is always the best option. Not so much speaking morally and ethically, which it is, it just always gets the best response. So here's what I did. I put my hands up and I said, okay guys, quiet, quiet, quiet. Guys, I'm three weeks away from four years of sobriety. There's no way I can take this shot. Guess what happened? They all started clapping. It was incredible. It was awesome. And just the love and the praise and the support that I got um, some guy got to take two shots. So win-win all across the table, but that's how to get out of those situations. You just say, Hey, look, I've been sober for X amount of days. There's no way I'm going to take this shot. Thank you very much. I'd appreciate your support. You don't even need to ask for the support. It's going to come anyways. The forum has launched and I got to tell you, it feels good to not be on Facebook all the time. And there's a lot of people I need to thank, including Angie. She was a big part in helping me set up the forum, getting the dialogue started. Again, I cannot do this alone. I cannot do sobriety alone. We cannot do this alone. Recovery elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>